grassland stretches for miles. A boundary of pine trees and chaparral push up into the surrounding hills. In the distance, clouds form a dark pool of indigo. The midday August sun begins to fade as the clouds close in on each other, gathering intensity and pigment as they roll together. The wind whips up in the trees and the temperature drops. The dry air fills with a different scent. That's when the sound of thunder rolls across the prairie. The antelope, who had been grazing undisturbed until now, raise their heads at the sound. The birds go quiet. Lightning touches down on one of the hillsides nearby. A column of smoke reaches to the sky, a burning tree. It lights all that it touches in the late summer forest. Driven by the wind, it grows, burning small shrubs and trees. Like kindling, the needles and branches ignite. As the fire moves through the forest, it darts and runs. Licking at the thick bark of an old tree, it moves on in search of younger, more susceptible fuel. As the wind pushes on and the rains neglect to follow the thunder, the fire gains in strength and momentum. It grows uphill, the hot, dry plants catching quickly. It moves faster up the ridge, then backs slowly down the shaded side of the mountain. The fire dances across the landscape, impacting the forests and meadows differently, depending on the elements of fuel, wind, and humidity. At one point, the fire hits a rock outcrop and stops. On another side, it encounters the spring fire set by the local tribe, and it runs out of fuel. Eventually, the fall rains come, and the fire is out. The landscape is a mosaic of green, yellow, and black. It tells the story of the fire, how it moved, when it raged, when it laid down, and when it crept on the ground. While killing many plants and trees, it also gives way for others to grow and thrive. Large trees that survived the fire have blackened bark, scorched by the fire's flames. But the upper branches of those old trees remain green. With more room on the forest floor, they have more resources, more water, more sunlight, and they can grow even bigger. Some plants needed that fire to open their seeds. By next spring, thousands of those seeds have sprouted and a new ecosystem is born. The grasses flourish in the openings and fill the blackened land. The deer and elk and antelope feast on the bounty. This process happens over and over again. Fire shapes life on Earth.
In his book, Fire, A Brief History, Stephen Pine writes, There was a time when the earth did not burn, when oxygen did not soak its atmosphere, when plants did not encrust its lands. But for more than 400 million years, the planet has burned. In some places and times, fire has trimmed and pruned flora. In others, it has hewn whole biotas. For virtually all, it has simply been there like floods and earthquakes, like the winds, droughts, seasons, browsers, and lightning with which it is associated. For almost all the span of terrestrial life, fire has continued to varying degrees as an environmental presence, an ecological process, and an evolutionary force. Fuel, oxygen, heat, that is fire's triangle. At various times, the play of fire's triangle has been cyclic, singular, evolutionary, but once created, it has always endured. Fire is one of Earth's most basic elements. The first evidence of wildfire on Earth dates back at least 420 million years ago, around the time that plants evolved onto land. Charcoal in the fossil record shows that fire has been present ever since. Fire could not occur without plants. We would not expect fire on a barren earth. There must be plant life on land that can provide a fuel source. This codependency of fire and plants has been key to the evolutionary of plant and animal communities, including humans, for millennia. Fire is the great rejuvenator. Fire can kill, but the rebirth is often what ecosystems depend on. Fire cycles nutrients back into the soil. It kills pests and bugs. It can burn in patches that give space that some species need. Fire shaped ecosystems for millions of years. It is as important as rain to many of Earth's plants and animals. Just as the changing tides or the patterns of clouds and rain are part of the machinery of this planet, so are wildfires. People, too, shape ecosystems. Humans are a keystone species. We are depended upon by other species, such that, when people were removed from the landscape, when European colonization decimated populations of Aboriginal people through genocide, disease, and displacement, ecosystems were dramatically altered. People were no longer working with the landscape. They were working against it. Driven by fear and commodification, fire was extinguished. In this episode of One Foot in the Black, we look to the past. We step back to learn about the role fire has played in shaping landscapes and cultures in Western North America, a story that is similar across the earth. We explore how humans coexisted with fire on the landscape before colonial policies of wildfire suppression and the forced removal of Aboriginal people from the land. And we discuss how indigenous people continue to use fire as they provide leadership in stewarding natural places to this day. We ask the questions, are we willing to learn from indigenous tribes about how to use fire? And how can indigenous tribes be supported in traditional burning on their ancestral lands? By asking these questions and exploring the topic of traditional ecological knowledge, we look at how we might help restore fire to the land 
returning an essential element to the ecosystem that has been missing for centuries, and the absence of which contributes to the catastrophic fires we see on landscapes today. Stay tuned to hear more about cultural fire on this episode of One Foot in the Black. Hey there, this is Jessica Klinke, producer for One Foot in the Black. I'm coming to you from Ashland in Southern Oregon, where KS Wild's office is located, and I would like to acknowledge and thank the Shasta and Tekelma people, the original caretakers of this land. Those of us who benefit from the settlement of native land can take action by learning whose land you're on, and then stand in solidarity with indigenous people who continue to fight for native justice and sovereignty. We've included links and resources in our show notes and website about tribes native to the klamath Siskiyou region, along with other groups and organizations fighting against injustices. Please go to their websites, follow them on social media, donate to their causes, and support the return of cultural fire use, traditional practices, and food sovereignty. Thanks. Now back to the show. Welcome back to One Foot in the Black. I'm Alexi Lovecchio. And I'm Joseph Vale. The story of indigenous fire use is not our story to tell. At KS Wild, as a part of our climate program, we interact with a number of organizations and tribes that are also working to address climate change and the severity of wildfire in the klamath Siskiyou region. While no one person can speak for a whole people, we felt it important to provide an indigenous perspective on cultural fire use especially around the application of traditional ecological knowledge in the time of climate change. We sat down with Belinda Brown, Tribal Partnership Director for Lomakatsi Restoration Project. My name is Belinda Brown. I'm a Kosolukta band member of the Ajumawi Atsage Nation. And Rick O'Rourke of the Cultural Fire Management Council. My name is uh, Rick O'Rourke, Yurok tribal member. I live in Northern California. I'm the fire coordinator and the project coordinator for the Cultural Fire Management Council. And I'm also a qualified firefighter, wildland firefighter, and that's who I am. Rick is a Yurok tribal member, but he's not speaking on behalf of the Yurok tribe. The story of indigenous fire is a story of humanity and fire. Fire has always been with us, a part of the human story. In North America, like in many parts of the world before European colonization, Indigenous people worked with fire. They used it to tend the land, to encourage certain plants, to protect their homes, and to practice ceremony and traditions. It is one of the most important tools for Indigenous cultures and one of the key elements for survival. I in no way speak for all the tribes. However, there are similarities and it goes to ceremony. Back to the ceremony and the rituals that kept us as a people and there's sweat lodge ceremonies, there's the Native American church, there's just the old fashioned bonfires in the country that we all used to go gather around. You know, fire draws that. In our tribe, there's different names for fire. There's a signal fire. There's a name for the fire when you build the fire for the sweat lodge. There's the hunting fire. And so just the common fires, malice. But knowing that there was all those ways that we used fire and it was utilized, 
and was holy for the people, I believe we share that with many tribes uh, across the, the globe. I, I always say that we go back to no matter who you are, what color you are, uh, a drumming, a singing, and a dancing society, and you are all Aboriginal to some place on this earth. And some place on this earth, your people gathered around a fire. For millennia, Indigenous peoples have used fire to protect the land. Grounded in deep knowledge of place, Native tribes throughout the world use carefully applied intentional burns to renew local foods, medicinal and cultural resources, create and maintain habitat for animals, to reduce pest populations, and reduce the risk of larger, more dangerous wildfires. We've heard it said that fire is good medicine. Fire is not only a tool used to help manage the land, but is traditionally part of daily life for many tribes. The removal of people from their land and their way of life removed an essential part of the ecosystem and a traditional ecological knowledge that exists through them. Um, all over the nation, uh, we are once again turning back to those traditional ecological knowledge and values and principles that have kept people for time immemorial. And even turning back and rolling back the curtain farther, we see fire in all of our ceremonial um, practices. So it has a very important part of our culture, our spirituality, our tradition, and then how we took care of our home, the land, the landscapes uh, for time immemorial, being able to see where we needed to put fire, to be able to increase the browse for the deer, the antelope, for all the subsistence species that we depend on that give their lives so that we can have life. And so these concepts and principles that surround tribal people, Aboriginal people, place-based people, and their ability to manage the land and the ability to practice good ecological uh, principles on the land living in harmony with the natural rhythms of the earth, sea, and heavens is one of the strengths that our people had and still have to this day. Our first agreement with our creator to be where we're at and to have everything that we need to live and live well, how to use it and when to use it. We need our basket materials to keep everything, our food, our gathering, our water, all clean and pure. And our basket materials are fire adapted species, the hazel, for instance. And we have to, we have to burn it off regularly every other year to get those long straight shoots. And we had a grad student doing a, uh, his thesis on the effects of fire and hazel. And as it turns out that fire going through and killing that top growth and allowing those shoots to come up also changes the molecular structure inside of that plant and make it, and makes it more resilient and the tinsel strength is increased phenomenal, phenomenally. Studies show that indigenous land management significantly shapes the evolutionary course of plant species and communities. Traditional ecological practices or sophisticated methods of using fire in order to enhance specific flora, optimize hunting conditions, maintain open travel routes, 
and support the flourishing of plants and animals that tribes rely upon for food sovereignty. And they'd start fires up on those ridges to create an inversion layer to lower the temperature of the river, which uh, essentially saves the salmon kill. I was talking to a uh, biologist for the Yurok tribe, a man named Mike Belchak, and he said that the, about four years ago, the fire up in Salmon River lowered the temperature of the river by two degrees and saved a salmon kill. Two degrees. And those salmon kills, when they die, it's, it is so heart-wrenching and, and sad. You know, our river's our life. Without our river, without our food, and without our fish, who are we? It's our home. It's our pharmacy. The land is our church. And it's our Home Depot. So that's that place-based Aboriginal knowledge that everybody has with their land base. And for some of us, we're still living in our heartland. And it's, it's a blessing to do so. Uh, being able to maintain your land, your people, your resources. And uh, how do you do that? And, and you don't have um, the system that we have now. Well, you depended on each other and you depended on those elements, the, the fire, the air, the earth, um, the water, water is life. And so the care for, the, for those basic elements of which we are all part of too, was uh, just a natural rhythm. And there was times, the time was sacred, timing is sacred, there's times to do all these things. And so those ceremonies and rituals that kept the people of which fire was a very much sacred part of, uh, in all of those ceremonies is, is a part of our DNA, that genetic makeup. And I always try to encourage everyone to go to that place for themselves and, and find out their culture because it helps them to connect. And at the end, our elders will say it helps keep us healthy and well. The Karuk, Yurok, and Hoopa tribes live along the Klamath River, which meanders from Southern Oregon through the Northern California mountains to the Pacific Ocean. These tribes have been using fire to manage the land since time immemorial. The removal of traditional burning has drastically altered the landscape of the Klamath River Basin. The Yurok Reservation is on the lower end of the Klamath River in Northern California in Humboldt and Del Norte counties, and I've lived up here for most of my life. I've been using fire since I was just a young guy, um, about 12 with grandpa. There's burning around the house for safety's sake and I learned how to do it safe and do it in pieces and burn it into itself. Pretty much small scale. What I'm doing now is we escalated into 60 to 80 acres of uh, land up here in the uh, Klamath drainage, which is one of the most dangerous drainages in the world to work with fire. At this point, there's so much fuel loading and brush and under storage and too many trees. We used to be primarily mostly prairie. And since the exclusion of fire, the encroachment of the fir trees and with the removal of certain species, but porcupine in particular, because they eat baby fir trees, it's one of their main staples in their diets. 
removing that species and no fire and really no management over planting of all the lumber companies they come in and they want to plant everything they planted all our prairies and now we have nothing but trees fir trees which is taken from our water table and just throwing us off balance so fire is really important to us in that way to keep it open keeping our water clean uh, right now the leaf litter is so thick out in the forest that the water leaching through the leaves is picking up those tannins and putting it into our water sources raising the alkali level and making it breeding grounds for bacteria fire is especially important in mountainous places like the klamath river basin in northern california where forests and grasslands are considered to be fire adopted low intensity purposefully set fires are used to provide protection from fuel buildup that cause larger, hotter, potentially more dangerous fires like those that have been burning in recent years across the West. Tribal management involves extensive knowledge of certain species and ecological conditions, as well as the knowledge of how to reproduce them. Ecological systems prosper because humans work with the land and with fire. As we talk about the departure from the historical landscape and removing the keystone species who kept the land, we are now coming back to having to set the stage with ecological forestry to actually put fire on the ground. It's like having uh, a really dirty house. Our elders would be uh, scolding us for allowing our land to look like it looks today. We look at fire in a different way. As, as something to be nurtured, intended, and taken care of, to treat it as with respect, like a family member. Because without that respect, someone disrespects you, you get mad, and who knows what can happen. And fire is the same way. But the application of fire, it's a rejuvenation. It's, it's fire for life, not fire for death. We're trying to create life. And this environment where our animals can thrive and in turn we thrive. Engaging in these activities today is still an act of fighting for cultural survival. We're fire practitioners. We use fire for a, for a reason. It's not a monster. It has our keystone elements and it has the right to exist and you can't keep it down because when it comes out mad and that's the fires we're getting now. We'll be right back. Before we return to this episode, I wanted to give a shout out to the organizations working with tribes and with traditional ecological knowledge in our region of Southern Oregon and Northern California. Lomakatsi Restoration Project develops and implements proactive community-based ecological restoration projects and provides vocational on-the-job training and employment in ecological restoration. For more information on their programs, like their Tribal Ecosystem Restoration Project, visit lomakatsi.org. That's L-O-M-A-K-A-T-S-I dot O-R-G. And the Cultural Fire Management Council, which facilitates the practice of cultural burning on the Yurok Reservation and ancestral lands. You can learn more at culturalfire.org. Now, back to One Foot in the Black. European settlers who came west in the late 1800s and early 1900s 
feared fire and set up land management policies to suppress it, a worldview characterized today by Smokey Bear. Government agencies have long considered fire the enemy, dangerous, destructive element to suppress and exclude from the land. The government wanted to protect commercially valuable conifers from being wasted in fires. Traditional ecological knowledge and land stewardship were sidelined in favor of wholesale firefighting. Here's Tim Inglesby, wildland firefighter and executive director of Firefighters United for Safety, Ethics, and Ecology, or FUSI. Well, when the Forest Service was first uh, created, I believe it was 1905, part of the progressive era, I would note, it had this brand new concept of conservation and forest conservation. Its original mission was really to conserve forests, particularly from the private timber industry was just doing cut and run logging and just decimating. And they just rolled across the continent, leaving vast stump fields in their wake. And there, there was concern that eventually, you know, we're gonna you know, hit the Pacific Ocean and run out, have a big timber famine. But forests were also vital as sources of water. You know, the, the, the headwaters of many watersheds. So. It wasn't a logging outfit back then. It was a, a conservation organization protecting public land, you know, for the, the greatest good for the greatest number of people over the great longest time. And, and but conservation was still kind of a abstract notion. So the Forest Service hit upon fire suppression. It will protect forest from fire. They protected it from logging, but they protected it from fire because. Logging wasn't really a pressure back then. In fact, private timber industry didn't want government competing on the market. So uh, it wasn't until after World War II, really, that the heyday of public lands logging came in. So, so for most of the first half of the 1900s, the Forest Service policy was called systematic fire suppression. And the notion was, wherever you see fire, jump on it, stomp on it, put it out quick, keep it small. They adopted this policy they called the 10 a.m. policy, which was like, you know, if any and every fire possible will be put out by 10, 10 in the morning, the day following its detection. That was about what they needed. And if you fail, we'll just add more crews and more, you know, machines and keep doing the same until it's finally dead out. The only good fire was a dead out fire in the forest And so, you know, it started out that fire was the, the industrial forester's enemy and the forest service attempted to exclude it entirely from the landscape and suppress it wherever it could access it. But, you know, changes started following and it was in about the, you know, mid late seventies that some pioneering fire ecologists, you know, revealed, hey, no, we're, we're actually making the forest more flammable. Each fire we put out merely puts off another bigger blaze, you know, in the future. Uh, Smoky Bear was an invention of the U.S. Forest Service and the War Advertising Council in the mid-40s. And it, it, was, it was pure propaganda from the start, okay, getting us to fear and hate and fight fires. You know, many people note that it's one of the world's most successful advertising campaigns. For most of our species existence, 
you could trace that back to the earliest hominids. A million, a million and a half years ago, we, we evolved with fire. We wouldn't have the big brains and the small jaws we had without fire cooking our foods. But we, we were attracted to fire, uh, you know, fiery landscapes. To this day, I mean, the first thing people do when they go camping, they want to build a fire. And it's a natural magnet for human interaction. And, it, but, you know, Smokey, Smokey the Bear, it, I mean, itself, it's a cartoon bear. How does it have such a grip on our collective consciousness? And not only is it a cartoon bear, but it's, it's completely antithetical to real bears. Because real bears love birds. Because that's where the best berry patches are. That's where the big den logs are. That's where all the grubs and all the real bears love birds. After a century of increasingly intensive fire suppression, the ecological structure of the forest has changed and fuels have accumulated. As the climate crisis creates hotter, drier, more unpredictable weather, forest fuels have helped drive larger wildfires faster and farther across the West. Clear-cut logging practices, where most of our old-growth, fire-resistant trees are cut down, has left us with densely planted forests grown solely for commercial purposes. These tree plantations are filled with smaller trees and brush, which are more prone to fire and can fuel big infernos. I believe that as we continue burning in our traditional windows, which is a couple of days in front of a storm, that the rain will put out the charred vegetation and create a biochar, which would sequester into our lands and help start filtering our water and opening it up and letting the earth get a drink of pure water. And it has just been a growing quest to help fix our lands and create balance again. So we try to mimic fire, and that's how, with ecological forestry, we're able to set the stage, get the debris out, thin the forest as well as we can with best practices to be able to put good fire back on the ground that's going to do the job that it needs to do to help our lands be healthy. Indigenous fire practitioners and cultural fire managers have been using fire to manage the landscape since the beginning of time. These practices are tried and true. They work. Fortunately, in the face of climate change, many ecologists, fire scientists, and policymakers are turning to indigenous knowledge and management practices for a path forward. The real question is, will society support tribes in leading the way to restore fire back to their ancestral homelands? In the next episode of One Foot in the Black, we explore living in a fire-prone landscape. Millions of people live in the wildland-urban interface, an area increasingly at risk from fires that are more extreme in the era of climate change. What is the Wui, and what makes a community at risk to wildfire? We will hear the story of the campfire, a fire that ripped through the town of Paradise in 2018, becoming the deadliest fire in California history. What lessons can we learn from those living next to fire? And how can we protect our homes, communities, 
and each other from the next inevitable wildfire. Join us next time on One Foot in the Black. One Foot in the Black is a production of the Klamath Siskiyou Wildland Center. This episode was written by Joseph Vale, Alexi Lavecchio, and Jessica Klinky. Editing and sound design by Jessica Klinky. Music provided by Blue Dot Sessions. A big thank you to our guests for this episode, Belinda Brown from Lomakotsi Restoration Project, Rick O'Rourke from the Cultural Fire Management Council, and Tim Inglesby from Fusey. Special thanks also to Tom Greco from Lomakotsi for contributing edits. Links and resources on topics covered in this episode, topics like traditional ecological knowledge and cultural fire use, in addition to maps of the Klamath-Siskiyou region, are available at kswild.org podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and review One Foot in the Black on your preferred podcast platform. It helps people find our podcast and makes us feel good about doing it. Thanks for listening.